So welcome back again to all those who's been with us. Welcome, a warm welcome to all those who just arrived. Just to let you know that we've been uh, celebrating Padmasambhava. Like Jitishamati um, was saying, we were stepping into his realm. And it's been quite magical, quite happy. Um, also, the offering, the musical offering was incredibly beautiful. So now we are here to hear Padmabhadra. And I just want to say a few words before we start it. I'm really moved, I'm really delighted that you are here with us. Um, Padmabhadra, he lives in Padmaloka. He's a pillar not only in, the, in our order, he's a pillar in our movement. He's been inspiring all these years, all, all, these, all, all these people. And I'm really, uh, I feel really fortunate that we have this uh, opportunity to invite him and, and he said yes. Uh, I just want to say something that that really, uh, I don't know how to say, well, as you know, I'm from originally from Mexico. And um, 15 years, I think 15 years ago or something, I was, uh, I went to a, a festival in Mexico as well, Padmasambo. In Mexico, we are a little bit more, well, not a little bit, we're kind of intense. <laughs> So you can imagine a festival of Padmasambhava. <laughs> and I was so excited, really. I was incredibly excited when I saw it, when I hear it, when I, I hear the stories about the magic and all this. And another member in Mexico approached to me and said, if you really want to know Padmasambhava, you have to go to England. You have to go to Padmaloka. And you have to hear Padmavajra. <laughs> and it's a true story. It's a true story, really. And, uh, and I remember I was so excited. I didn't come that immediately. But then 10 years happened, and then I came to Padmaloka. And I was sitting there next to this beautiful image that had Padmasambhava, the painting of Aloka. He was talking about magic. He was talking about the, the magic of transformation. He was talking with his energy, his beauty, beautiful voice, talking about what is important how we can transcend that is natural, that the potential is in ah, here, and that the only thing we need to go to do is awareness, to bring love and to open and expand ourselves. I love when I hear Padmavaja, and I, I'm talking about 15 years ago. Um, a year ago, uh, when in February, this February, I just, uh, we were in retreat together, and um, like I said, uh, I was talking this morning about it, in fact, about how Padmasambhava appeared with this image um, of a local painting. Uh, and we were in retreat, and I just, I just said to myself, should I, should I ask uh, Padmavajra if he could do the keynote in this festival? And I approached to him, he was so getting out of the shrine, and I said, do you think you can do it? And he said, I'll tell you, I'll tell you later. Yeah. <laughs> I went back to my room, and then he came here, come to the room. He didn't speak a word. He just gave me a card, <laughs> like this. <laughs> Give me the card. And in that card what that was that image that I saw years ago. And it's a confession. And I, hear, I say it as a confession because I come from a, like I was saying this morning, I come from a very macho uh, country, so men don't cry. <laughs> I start crying. <laughs> in fact, uh, I'm trying to control myself right now. <laughs> and he said something beautiful. He said, I don't know if you remember, he said, 
you're allowed to cry. You are Mexican. <laughs> thank you, Pamela and thank you for sharing this day. Thank you, like Yatushamati says, we've been creating a, an offering to the Guru. Pamela thanks. Thank you very much, Sadaketu, for such a beautiful uh, introduction. And I'm very honoured, actually, to be part of your Padmasambhava Day uh, celebrations here at the uh, London Buddhist Centre. Uh, I've actually done a few over the years um, here in, in London. And I'm actually going to be celebrating Padmasambhava Day twice, because after this I go to Sheffield and... Their Padmasambhava Day is next Sunday, and I'm giving a talk there. A different one, actually, to this one. And, uh, yes, I decided, you know, let's, let's give it a, a... Let's do something a bit different. So, hence the title, Being Eaten in the Castle of the Skull. A bit of a different title, rather than transformation of this and conversion of that, and so on and so forth. And there is a reason for it. Um, when we talk about Padmasambhava, quite rightly, we celebrate him as, if you like, the manifestation of, this is what our teacher Sangharachita says of Padmasambhava, he is the manifestation of the Buddha himself, Buddhism itself, in the form of transforming you know, the deep forces within the world, within a particular culture, within a particular society, within life, the deep Forces, quite natural forces, which, if they're not related to correctly, become destructive. Uh, he gave a talk on that in this very room, not long after the founding of this centre, standing, I think sitting here, uh, and talking. It's a wonderful talk, you must hear it. It is the definitive talk for us, I think, on Padmasambhava, and even talking about transforming the economic demons, mammon, uh, down the road in the city of London, that uh, those demons have to be tr transformed and taken onto the path, as well as many other things. And, you know, Padmasambhava, as I'm sure you've heard, is famous for his conversion of the gods and spirits of, of Tibet that are obstructing the creation of the great Samye monastery, the great temple, uh, and obstructing the, 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 the progress, the liberating progress of the Dharma the resistance, really, if you like, from, in some ways, the forces of the collective unconscious, the forces of the land, to liberation. Once they are, of course, irresistibly attracted to Padmasambhava because it isn't really power that he uses to transform, but enchantment mm -hmm. and beauty, if you like, and, yes, magic of all kinds when they reveal the heart of their lives to him, which is their secret name, their essence, of course, they're only too willing to serve and to enrich uh, the progress of the Dharma. So Padmasambhava is very, very important within our Sangha, within our spiritual community, within our Buddhist movement, and we've barely started to follow him in this work. We've barely started. Very important, I think, to be realise where we are we are a very, very long way from the deep 
transformation of the world in which we are. We're starting a little bit on ourselves, but we have a very, very long way to go, lifetimes of uh, activity to go. But that doesn't matter because uh, this is all fun, uh, what we're doing. <laughs> so I wanted to, what I wanted to talk about was have a go at trying to see, well, how did Padmasambhava get to be like that? What was his training? What did he do? What's the story before he starts to convert these forces? It's a little bit strange because although Padmasambhava is regarded, in certainly among Tibetans, as a historical figure, he's clearly a highly, what we would say, mythic, symbolic, archetypal figure who is also associated with a kind of history. Um, I won't go too much into that. And of course, he starts, in most of the accounts, uh, these big red volumes, is a very famous translation of the Padma Kaitan, the testament of Padma, uh, the life and liberation of Padmasambhava. In this particular account, he starts life fully formed as an eight-year-old boy, rose-coloured, pink, in the middle of a lotus in a magnificent lake somewhere in northwestern India, probably somewhere around Sindh province, maybe a bit further north than that. Um, there he is, a kind of emanation of Amitabha and Avalokiteshvara, an emanation of compassion, uh, fully formed this gorgeous, beautiful apparition. And a local king who's childless, which is, of course, a serious issue, there's no heir, uh, hears about this prodigy and uh, adopts him. Uh, highly risky, I think, to adopt a an eight-year-old that you find in a lotus. Um, very risky, who's, who's already speaking wisdom. You know, he's asked, you know, the king asks him, you know, you know, who's your father? I am born of voidness. You can imagine a child speaking that to you. I mean, children do talk a bit like that sometimes, don't they? You know, and uh, anyway, he adopts him and... Um, you know, he has a, he's adored, of course, this, this boy. He's adored, you know, and he starts to grow very quickly to become the son and heir to lead the kingdom. But if you're from another dimension, being in a palace becomes highly restricting, doesn't it? It becomes highly confining. Uh, you want to do something rather different. Open space is far more appealing to you. And he started to behave very, very strangely because he wanted to leave. Not only did he want to leave, he wanted to cut all ties with the family, the kingdom, future responsibilities. He wanted to go. So he started to enter what Tantric Buddhism calls sometimes Unamatacharya, insane practice. He started to get ecstatic dancing naked with a trident, adorning himself with, himself with a skull garland, acting very, very crazy. All sorts of strange consequences came from this crazy practice. So much so, so shocking to the sort of very you know, caste-ridden court 
uh, he's all very, very proper, Brahminical, um, he has to go. The king doesn't want him to go, but his ministers say he has to go. He's causing so many problems. He's got to go. He's got to be, well, they wanted him to be executed, but the king couldn't bear that thought. So they say, well, it must be exile. He must be exiled. He must be sent and left in the cremation ground, hundreds of miles away, the cremation ground called Chili Grove. Sitavana, the cold forest, a great cremation ground. It's a very, uh, the life of Padmasambhava is highly symbolic. You can read it on so many different levels. Yes, it is an account of a, of a great being, but also I think you can read this in another way as something for us to learn from. Here you are, I can, looking around the room, I can see there's different sort of levels of involvement. You've come to Buddhism You've, you've, you've adopted Buddhism into your life, the young, fresh vision of Buddhism into your life. Just be careful. It might become very disruptive. Um, there really should be a health warning, I think, with every beginner's meditation class. You know, you get that lovely, soothing introduction gently into things. But sometimes when you let the truth in, when you let reality in, it starts to do stuff. Um, in the end, it will all work out if you stick with it. But it might <laughs> well start, you know, might well start to kind of make things a little more difficult. So you can also read this as, you know, as something for us. You know, I think so much these days we try to incorporate things like Buddhism, spiritual practices, to make ourselves more comfortable with what we have. Be very careful with that. Be very careful with that. It might not work. It might be the other way that the Dharma, the truth, actually starts to take you over. So he goes to the cremation ground, a very fearful place. Uh, being exiled, you're being exiled in a kind of untouchable place because it's not where the, the pure high caste people go. This is where the outcasts go. Only outcasts work in a cremation ground. These are lonely places where the dead are just left and they're also inhabited by all sorts of ghouls and ogres and ogresses, the worldly darkenies who, uh, well, you know, who are really going to do stuff to you if you hang around too, too long in such places. But they're also places of teaching and learning. They seem to be places which attract teachers of different kinds, human teachers, non-human teachers. And we find in Padmasambhava's training that he just goes from one great cremation ground to another. Again, the symbolism is very interesting. There were eight great cremation grounds that were recognised by Tantric Buddhism in India, which are also said to symbolise the eight consciousnesses that a human being has. Our entire being is a cremation ground. Our entire self and other world is a cremation ground. It's not just the place of the living, it's also the place of the dying. We're already in these eight great cremation grounds if we did, if we did but know it and if we knew it, we'd actually start meeting teachers. We'd start encountering all sorts of different uh, characters that will enrich our being and initiate us. And towards the end of his journey through cremation grounds, 
before he comes to the very last one, this happens. Now Padma reached the abode of the Vidyadhara who frequents heaven in the cemetery of sleep, in the mysterious paths of beatitude, he came to the place of the Darkini Surya Chandra Siddhi, the attainment of sun and moon, the highest of the Darkinis. Padma desired to go before her, as she was also the great Darkini Queen of Deeds. Finding the door to the castle of the skull closed, he could not attain liberation. So these are the opening stanzas of Canto 34 of the Life and Liberation of Padmasambhava, the Testament of Padma. And the stanzas I've read are the beginning of the account of Padmasambhava's initiation by a darkini, a wisdom the darkini, the highest darkini. Darkinis, in this sense, the wisdom darkinis, are feminine embodiments of reality, of the way things are. Uh, feminine embodiments of enlightenment. And she is the highest darkening, the attainment of sun and moon, the magical attainment of sun and moon, of solar and lunar energies. This text uses highly symbolic language to try and communicate the experience of initiation. It uses a language uh, or it's related to a language which in Sanskrit is called Santyabhasa, uh, which means something like twilight language. You know, in the twilight, things are not as they seem. Things look like other things. Uh, the twilight is a wonderful zone, isn't it? It's a wonderful sort of place, a, 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 a hinterland, you know, between light and dark, between night and day. And things look like some, some things and they look like something else. Are they there? Are they not there? It's a wonderful time. Well, in Tantric Buddhism, they developed a whole language which has multiple meanings. An outer meaning, an inner meaning, a secret meaning, a most secret meaning, and so on and so forth. And this particular uh, description, this particular use of Sandhya is trying to communicate the nature of initiation. Initiation is crucial in Tantric Buddhism. It, it, in a way, it becomes the way of talking about going for refuge, talking about the, the great, uh, if you like, conversion to the Buddhist life within its own context. But it brings something very special to that language. Initiation, you're initiated by a teacher into particular forms of spiritual practice, even into the spiritual life itself. The Sanskrit word for initiation is abhisheka, which means an anointing, a sprinkling. Um, as, and, it, and it goes back to old uh, kingly rituals, uh, ro royal uh, rituals in India, where the king initiates the crown prince as the next king with a water pot, sprinkling him with anointing him creating him as the next king. This is taken over uh, in Tantric Buddhism, that, uh, like with Sangharachita, our teacher, in asking friends what initiation was like, they said, you're being made like a king. 
you're being made like a king. Uh, you're being initiated into the life of the Dharma, which is being made like a king. You even get this language, even in the old Pali text, there's a beautiful story about an old man who goes to the Buddha, hasn't seen the Buddha for a long, long time, and the Buddha says, well, I'm so pleased to see you, it's been so long. He said, well, yes, I'm old and I haven't been able to... Uh, I haven't been able to move very much. I haven't been able to see you. And the Buddha says, yes, having this body, we age. And there was something in the communication, something in those few words, something in the presence of the Buddha that made this old man say, I feel as though I have been sprinkled with the deathless, with the deathless nectar. Just a few words from the Buddha was enough to make him feel that he'd been sprinkled with something eternal. So initiation is very important. And, and going back to that story from the Buddha, this is what it really means. It's a profound communication between the more experienced and the less experienced, even the, the very greatly more experienced than the person who's less experienced. Initiation can also happen in visions, in dreams, in profound meditations, in encounters with deities, and so on. But here we're going to be looking at Padma's initiation by Adarkani. So it goes on, in the cemetery of sleep, in the mysterious paths of beatitude. So the cemetery, the cremation ground of sleep. Sleep is a cremation ground. Sleep is a cemetery. It's interesting when we go to sleep, isn't it? Because we might not wake up. You know, it is a kind of death, isn't it, going to sleep? Tibetan Buddhists, in their, in their, in, you know, they, when they're talking about training for death, they say, well, use sleep as a preparation for that, closing your eyes, deeply relaxed, and just open up. I think I've had some of my strongest as it were, spiritual experiences, meditation, visions, teachings in dreams, or in the semi-waking state, just moving into that other zone. The cemetery of sleep, or is it, is the cemetery ignorance? Is it dream? Um, another translation calls it, the cemetery is called Sandalwood Garden. Uh, sandalwood Garden, this world is like a sandalwood garden, very sweet smelling very attractive but really it's a place of the dead um, it's also called the cemetery called is called secret play there's another lovely idea isn't it you go to a cremation ground you go to this world of change and it's actually a, an arena of play it's nothing to be frightened of if you have the right attitude it's playful but where are we in the cemetery of sleep in the mysterious paths of beatitude. Where on earth are we? The mysterious uh, paths of pathway of blessings. Obviously, it seems to me, whenever I read these words, it's, uh, what's evoked for me is a world of profound interiority. We're moving into an inner world. We're moving into what's been called the cave of the heart. We're going inside, inside. We need to be, if you want initiation, you need to be prepared to take these pathways, go on these journeys. This is the place of the Darkani, Surya Chandra Siddhi. 
the attainment of sun and moon or the attainment of the union of the solar and lunar energies, uh, the attainment of the union of bliss and emptiness, emptiness and skillful means, wisdom and compassion, masculine and feminine, all opposites are united in this great Darkani Surya Chandra city, the highest of the Darkanis, the wisdom Darkani. Uh, she's not a worldly Darkani. Don't get your Darkanis confused, <laughs> those of you who know about Darkani. So it's really important this. There's a big difference between a wisdom Darkani and sometimes worldly Darkanis, and worldly Darkers too. This is an equal opportunity talk. Um, worldly Darkars too, they they can pretend to be wisdom darkenies and wisdom darkers. So just watch out. She is the embodiment of the highest city itself, Buddhahood itself, reality itself. Padma desired to go before her, as she was also the great darkeny, queen of deeds. So he desired to go before her. This is very important, just that line. You know, if you want initiation, and if you want that encounter with that higher dimension, that communication with the profound, you have to desire it intensely. You have to yearn for it. You have to long for it. And I know you've, you know, you've studied a bit of Buddhism and you hear that craving is the cause of, of suffering and all that. Well, forget that for now. That's true. I'm not going to do that. But Honestly, if you want to live the Dharma life fully, you have to desire, desire it. You have to activate a very intense desire and longing. Otherwise, nothing will happen. Uh, nothing will happen at all. He desired to go before her. He really wanted to see her. He wanted to worship her, entreat her, learn from her. She is the queen of deeds. She is the action darkeny. She is the embodiment, not just of the union of all opposites, all energies. She is also the embodiment of enlightened action, total egoless action, spontaneous, compassionate activity. Because remember, Padmasambhava, he's not just living a spiritual life for himself. He's taken the Bodhisattva vow. He wants to communicate the Dharma, go into the world and communicate the Dharma to anybody and everybody exactly as they can understand it, exactly as they need it. So he wants an initiation from this figure because she is the embodiment of that activity. Finding the door to the castle of the skull closed, he could not attain liberation. The castle of the skull which is a kind of temple, the castle of the tall, the skull. I mean, it's like something out of one of those movies I don't watch. Um, <laughs> the castle of the skull. Is anybody, you know, I'm sure somebody's going to rip this talk off and turn it into one of those computer games. Anyway, <laughs> the castle of the skull is closed. This is where the darkeny stays, and the door is closed shut. He can't go before her. He can't attain liberation through the union of solar and lunar energies. The mysterious pathways lead to a closed door. The darkeny, the teacher, isn't just available to us when we want them to be. 
That's what we assume, that we have a sort of right to the teacher. You go along to the... You know, supposing you go along to your class, your regular class here, and the door's shut. And you get a message. Well, we're not just going to open up just when you want us to. I mean, there'd probably be a lot of trouble, but... Um, you have to prove yourself if you went to, want to go into the castle of the skull, basically. You have to demonstrate your desire, your readiness. Sometimes the castle of the skull is uh, seen as a symbol of the highest energy centre, the highest chakra. This is yogic symbolism with the body as a locus for spiritual uh, practice, which of course is an entirely different vision of the body, unlike any vision we know, and it's very, very important in Tantric Buddhism, this idea of total transformation. So you can't get to that, that, that enlightenment which is situated in the highest part of the body. So what does he do, the text says? So he sent a message through the maidservant Kumari, and when he received no reply, he asked her if she had forgotten to take the message. She was carrying a crystal chalice, which she filled with water. And Padma said, let me carry it and put it on the chalice sideboard for you. And the victorious one, Padma Sambhava, put the chalice on the sideboard and caused it to stick there. Kumari tried and tried, but she could not get the chalice to move. So Padmasambhava might not be able to go directly to the great Darkini. The door is shot, shut. But there is a maidservant, Kumari. And through her, he sends a message. Kumari evokes a very beautiful, enchanting, mysterious uh, being. A Kumari is a woman on the cusp of maturity. So... Again, this, this, this in-between uh, domain. She is the messenger who moves between two worlds. The world of the wisdom darkeni reality, in the castle of the skull, and Padmasambhava, the person longing for initiation. This is a, there's something very important here. We need messengers in our spiritual life. We need intermediaries. Sometimes people hear about enlightenment, they feel that they've got to get it straight away, doing what, some, what some, someone once called a smash-and-grab raid on the absolute, like a sort of bank robber, you know, getting the goodies of enlightenment without too much uh, trouble on their part, you know, just sheer force of will. Well, you can't do that. You need to approach it gradually. You need to approach it through messages, through through intermediaries. This is the real meaning of, of spiritual hierarchy. Spiritual hierarchy has got nothing to do with power, nothing to do with oppression. It's got everything to do with liberation. We need to take the next step, the step that's just beyond us, that reflects the beyond, um, something which is closer to the light of enlightenment and closer to us. This is the symbolism of Kumari. She's this wonderful messenger between worlds. There's a wonderful prayer to Padmasambhava by the great Dujom Rinpoche, one of Sangharakshita's teachers, and he talks about the prayer being a messenger to my teacher, being a messenger to Guru Padmasambhava. And I was very 
had that very much in mind with with the beautiful uh, chanting of, of, of Satya Gosha and Vandana Jyoti and the beautiful singing. It really felt like a messenger, didn't it? it something was being sent up, sent to a different dimension and drawing something down to us into the room, utterly trans transforming. That's the liberation, liberation of, of hierarchy. Kumari does not reply to his question. She is herself a darkening figure. She doesn't reply to the question about sending a message to the great darkening. She just carries on with her work, placing a chalice, something to do with tantric ritual on a sort of sideboard. And here Padmasambhava knows he must show his quality. So through his siddhi, his magic power, he prevents her from moving the chalice. If you really want initiation, if you really want to take the next step, you have to demonstrate how serious you really are. You have to show your quality. Your desire uh, must manifest. You have to demonstrate your single-minded dedication. Not giving up at refusal or at feeling ignored. Not throwing a tantrum at not getting what you want. Usually the guru, when you throw a tantrum, will just continue to ignore you. But you have to demonstrate your determination, your intention, your commitment. You really want this. And you will demonstrate that you have the qualities to do that. There are deep and deeper hidden meanings here, of course. Practice, to do with practices of tantric yoga, where you have the power over all of your energies. All your energies are drawn into what they call the central channel, the other duty. There's no dissipation in your life. So you draw the darkness towards you. And she responds, Kumari responds in a very interesting way. She removed the carrying cord, presumably on her chalice, and went up to the victorious one, Padmasambhava, and with a crystal dagger, she cut open her breast, which, within which appeared the 42 peaceful deities in the upper part and the 58 herakas, wrathful deities, in her lower torso, thus vividly displaying the 100 peaceful and wrathful divinities. Wow. What a girl. <laughs> the Kumari is impressed by Padmasambhava's city, his power, so she responds. She completely opens to him. That's the point. She shows herself what she really is, what she really has. He's passed a test. The crystal dagger is utterly pure, penetrating, incisive wisdom. It cuts away all appearance and reveals what she really is. What her body contains, it contains the great mandalas of the 100 peaceful and wrathful Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. She reveals the true nature of the body itself. There's a lot of talk about the body these days, being into your body, you know, very either very materialistic or very sort of psycho babblish in my opinion and I have many opinions lots of ideas but here you have the traditional vision the body contains the vast 
mandala of all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. It's not enough to say we have potential. That's too abstract and conceptual. The body is sacred because it's a sacred dwelling place, a divine mansion of all the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas. It's not, therefore, this body to be squandered and wasted and pursuing it as an end in itself or to denigrate it. It's the arena, the realm, to activate the fullest riches of Buddhahood, particularly through meditation on the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. All deities, says, say, says William Blake, reside in the human breast. And Tantric Buddhism takes that absolutely literally, totally seriously. And that's why the body is so highly valued in Buddhist tradition generally, uh, and in Tantric Buddhism especially. Kumari shows this, a great vision of what this body is and what it is for. And she says, you also possess the force of the powerful mantras, but what of my miracles, great man? And she bowed and circumambulated him. I ask, he said, for the outer, inner and secret initiations. Kumari replies, I'm only a servant. Come inside. So she prays him, praises him and taunts him and teases him as a darkeny would. He thinks she's the great darkeny, Surya Chandra Siddhi. She's just the servant. What a servant. Uh, so he asks her for initiation, all the levels. But no, she's only the servant, the messenger. And she tells him to come inside, to come into the great temple, the castle of the skull, which is now open to him. Kumari, the servant, the messenger, has given him a vision of what is possible. Now there must be real initiation, total transformation. Upon entering, Padma beheld the darkening, enthroned on the dais of Surya Chandra Siddhi, the magical attainment of sun and moon. Adorned with the six solar and lunar ornaments, red in colour, she was flanked by darkars. She wore bone ornaments and held a skull cup and a wooden drum in her hands. Surrounded by 33 maidens, she was performing a feast offering. So here she is, the great darkeny, magical attainment of sun and moon the one who embodies the union of solar and lunar energies seated on a great throne, and she is red, a gorgeous, deep and luminous red, the colour of blood, of passion, of great compassion, holding a skull cup filled with rakta, with blood, nectar, and rattling a wooden damaru, a small drum, wearing the six solar and lunar ornaments. We're not told what these are, presumably bracelets and necklaces, jewellery, displaying, proclaiming beautifully her realisation. And she's wearing bone ornaments, symbols of spiritual death, of shunyata. And she's flanked by darkars, the male equivalent of the darkanese, beautiful, handsome, youthful men of different colours. And 33 maidens, kumaris, surround her. Incredible 
vision. And she's performing, leading a great feast offering, a Gana Chakra, a gathering of the Tantric Sangha. Gatherings of the Tantric Sangha are always a celebration. The Tantric Sangha is the Gana around a particular teacher. I think we had a flavour of the Gana Chakra from the musical offering early, earlier. I was so pleased to hear that because, yes, this is, this is a Gana Chakra. This is a kind of offering, uh, a feast offering. And Padma has joined this amazing scene. He's come in to the middle of this feast offering. I remember myself once, when I was thinking about this, stumbling into a Gana Chakra myself many, many years ago in, uh, near Darjeeling in a little, a little monastery on Tiger Hill. I was looking for one of Sangharakshita's teachers, the great Chatral Rinpoche, Chatral Songye Dorje, and I'd heard he was at this monastery, and uh, I wandered in to the main shrine room, and they were doing a Gana Chakra. They were doing a Tsok, these old uh, monks. And uh, I came in, they looked up, I did a prostration, I sat down, at which they all laughed, thought this was a great joke, um, carried on with their puja, and then, you know, when they, 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 when they finished, they, you know, they gave me some of the, the, the feast offerings and rubbed me on the head and left. And then I found my way out the back into a kind of storeroom to the great teacher. I did find Chapter Rinpoche, but that's another story. What does Padma do in response to the Darkani. Padma prostrated himself to the enthroned Darkani, circumambulated her and presented to her a golden wheel with a thousand spokes. He prostrates, he surrenders completely to this great vision, to the Darkani and her entourage, her Sangha, and he offers a golden wheel with a thousand spokes. He kneels, holding this golden wheel, entreating, begging, for the teaching, the golden wheel is the symbol itself of the teaching. Um, but it's also, of course, you know, gold being you know the 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 the, uh, the most precious of all metals. Really, he's offering himself. Sangharachta, our teacher, when he was in India, first receiving tantric initiations, he was told by his Tibetan teachers and friends who were taking him to these great teachers. They said. Look, you're going to a tantric initiation. You have to give cash. <laughs> cash is expected. You know, not a nice little you know thing you found. You know, as an offering, cash, <laughs> hard cash. One of his teachers actually gave an initiation with a a fan of currency notes in his pockets: <laughs> dollars, yen, rupees, pounds sterling. He was also wearing a Hawaiian shirt and had a sort of cowboy hat on. In Indian, you know, in, in the old days, you know, when, when Tibetans went to India, you know, for, for, for the teachings, they had to give gold to these, these, these cranky tantric siddhas. They, they really liked gold, and Tibetans had gold. But you've got to give something concrete, something really practical. Sangharachita said he wasn't told how much. How much is a tantric initiation worth? How much do you value the liberating teaching? Are you prepared to give everything? Just a few bob, you know? Are you prepared to give absolutely everything for this teaching? It will liberate you. 
Padma gives a golden wheel of a thousand spokes, which esoterically represents the transformation and the purification of his entire physical being. All the chakras, all the energy flows, all the nadis, everything is available. His whole being is available for her, for the great red Dagani. Nothing is left out. And when he begged her for the teachings, outer, inner and secret, there appeared many rainbow lights in the sky in front of a multitude of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Of good karma, a noble being, he out now asked for the initiation, saying, Before the supreme sages appeared, without yet the name of Buddha, even the Buddhas of the thousand ages depended upon the Guru. I aspire to see the majestic and superior lake of glory as revealed in the moon of your face, to see through grace the one who instructs. I do not ask for attainment from the deities, but I ask this of the Guru. He begs, he entreats, and the deities, the hundred peaceful, wrathful Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, appear all around the darkening. She's sort of making them happen, like an aura in the sky. He sees all this, but he praises her as the guru, as the teacher, as the spiritual friend. He praises, if you like, the guru principle because everything comes from the teacher. Everything comes from spiritual friends. Then don't we know it? Um, everything comes from the guru. He sees her as the guru and sees the, the mandala of the Buddhas in her face gazes at her, really looks at her. There's this lovely Indian tradition of darshan, of seeing and being seen by the teacher. I aspire to see the majestic and superior lake of glory as revealed in the moon of your face. Looking at her, he sees all the Buddhas. In tantric Buddhism, the guru is highly praised because without the guru you would never see the buddhas you'd never follow the path you, the guru is your connection to the buddhas you are practicing the liberating the dharma because of the teacher and spiritual friends where would we be without our spiritual friends where would we be if we couldn't go somewhere to meet with spiritual friends they might not be the great wisdom darkening. They might not be some incredible tantric guru. You know, they've, they're just wearing their jeans and, you know, their clothes from llamas and so on and so forth. But there they are, befriending you, communicating the Dharma to you exactly as you need it. Where would we be without them? Padmasambhava doesn't want the attainment of the deities, the Buddhas. He wants the darkening's grace, her blessing. He's completely opening to whatever she will give, with no expectation. If you really want blessing, instruction, initiation, you go without expectation. You give up. You even end up seeing everything in the teacher. And the Darkani spoke, you understand in your request that all the Buddhas are gathered in my heart. They're all there in her. So in other words, she witnesses that he's got the right understanding. All the Buddhas are constellated in her. She confirms his realisation. So then, this is what happens. 
This is the initiation. She then changed Padma into the syllable hum and swallowed him, thus conferring initiation upon him within the mandala of her body. Anything can happen in an initiation. Abhisheka means anointing, sprinkling. Uh, the Tibetans translate that as wonkur, which means empowerment. Both these terms suggest that something comes into you from outside. Something is added on. But real initiation is a vanishing. A vanishing. I know you've got some mitra ceremonies later. <laughs> I wonder if that's going to be a vanishing. A vanishing, a death. You go into the castle of the skull and you do not return as you. There's another Indian word for initiation, which is diksha, which means to give. It also means to destroy. So you're given something, but there is a destruction. In this case, Padmasambhava is turned into the seed syllable hum. He's sort of essentialized made into a sort of mantric sound, which is him, the essential him, which is also voidness and emptiness. And it's throbbing with life and energy. So you've got to sort of visualise this person suddenly turned into a vibrating syllable, a vibration in the air. That's what he's allowed her to do. That's what she's done. He's reduced, but really he's essentialize everything superficial is dissolved stripped away he's reduced to the essence so he can really receive really train and he's eaten consumed and digested into the body of the darkening we go along for initiation we go along for ordination order members here maybe we even go along to mitra ceremonies um, to get something i certainly had that attitude when i was ordained by sangharachita a long time ago um, and i did get something um, but i must admit i got a lot more than i bargained for nothing was added on it was much more like a stripping away like a burning that's what it was like and no matter how much I tried to uh, incorporate that into my ego identity, whatever happened would not allow me to do that. In the presence of the master, in the presence of the mistress, the darkeni, you dissolved and are consumed by the vastness of the Dharma. You're taken in and digested and eaten up. In Zen Buddhist tradition, they talk about going to the tiger's cave when you go to see a Zen master. And tiger's caves are remarkable because tracks lead up, but no tracks come out. And one of my favorite Sufi masters, the great Ahmad Ghazali, in his famous apparitions of the realms of, true, of, of the pure spirits, in his discussion of ishq, uh, passion, love, but it's his word for reality, transcendental passion. Love is a man-eater. It eats up human nature and leaves nothing behind. Once it devours this nature, it gains possession 
of the domain of the lover's being and becomes its commander. Wow. So we need to be ready for this if we take up the Dharma. I hope, I, I hope I'm not going to put anybody off living <laughs> this life. I'm, I, by the way, I'm scaring myself giving this talk. I probably have terrible dreams tonight. So we need to be ready for this if we take up the Dharma. Prepare to lose everything ourselves. Prepare to be turned into whom and digested in the body of reality. I mean, partly why I want to talk like this because we can be so glib. You know, I can be glib. You talk, I mean, I'm being glib in a way now. Talk, we talk casually about insight, people blathering on about insight, spiritual death, spiritual rebirth, and all the rest of it. But the reality is that if we take up this Dharma life, we have to be prepared to lose absolutely everything. Only then will something else open up. So something does open up. The text goes on empowering him externally as Buddha Amitabha. She gave the blessing to attain the Vidyadhara level of long life. Empowering him internally as the noble Avalokiteshra, she gave him the blessing to attain the Vidyadhara level of Mahamudra. Empowering him secretly as glorious Hayagriva, she blessed him to bind all the Mamo Dakinis and haughty demon spirits. So here we have the descriptions of the empowerments, the initiations, the trainings that Surya Chandrasiddhi gave him within her body as he descended through her chakras, her fully flourishing, blossoming being. That's the nature of this figure. All the energy centres are operating freely. They are themselves mandalas unto themselves, places of training, of spiritual practice. So he descends through these lotus wheels, the lotus wheels of her spiritual body, um, being initiated into these different Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Because, in, because uh, empowerment, of course, means activation. Sometimes at the initiation, you feel a tremendous activation of energy, which can be so strong that it burns you, brands you like a thunderbolt, like a lightning bolt, which can be hard to take. That's why you need lots and lots of preparation. So the empowerment that, the, uh, the, the, that she gives, the activations the Darkani gives, of course we have something like this in our own order because at the time of initiation, of ordination, we receive initiation into the mantra of a Buddha or Bodhisattva. So we constantly meditate on that figure. So all these things that have happened to Padmasambhava inside the body of Surya Chandra Siddhi, he's being empowered to take up particular meditations which he'll keep alive. So we better start winding up. So he goes through her body, being initiated into all these figures. And he was then, with blessings, ejected through her secret lotus. And his body, speech and mind were thus purified from mental defilements. So there he is. He's been turned into this syllable. He's been swallowed, digested, gone through a whole spiritual journey. And then he re-emerges. He emerges from her completely purified, completely 
spiritually reborn, passing through all the Vidyadhara levels. He's now able to start transforming all of the difficult material in the world around him, all those difficult and demanding forces. Uh, but that can only happen because of this training, because of being prepared to give up everything, being prepared to enter the castle of the skull, being prepared to be devoured by the great darkening. So I hope that's given you a, perhaps a slightly different uh, insight into Guru Padmasambhava. Uh, perhaps uh, it shows you what the path is in a very odd kind of way. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Padmasambhava. Thank you really, really uh, from my heart. I really, I, I have to say that is, it's uh, fascinating how you share your experience, your knowledge, your teaching. But especially, I think what I, I really feel it is that the way you share the vision of what is possible with so much kindness, with so much love. Thank you very much. Another one. So we're going. Uh, we what we're going is we have dinner after 5:45. We go into the mandala to the cafe, and then if we get very full in the restaurant, we can come outside and eat in the courtyard. And and, and then after that, 7:15, 7 p.m. 7 p.m. We have the mitra ceremonies here. Thank you very very much. And we'll see you there. Thank, Thank you. you. I want to say bye.